Hi everyone and welcome to episode 4 of Better Together. I'm Phil Winterbottom, the group designated nurse for safeguarding at the Priory Group. According to research by Age UK, each year approximately 3.25 million people are victims of financial scams or personal fraud in the UK. Section 42 of the Care Act introduced a focus on financial abuse which includes scamming and it's the second most common form of abuse dealt with in safeguarding adult interventions. During this episode we'll be talking about what we know about how scammers target vulnerable groups, how we safeguard against scammers and what the role of mental health care providers is, especially considering the perceived tension between the Mental Capacity Act and a provider's duty of care. Today I'm joined by Professor Keith Brown, Chair of the Safeguarding Adults National Network. Welcome Keith and thank you so much for joining me today. I'd like to start by hearing a brief overview of your background and how you became interested and then involved in the area of scamming. Well, what a lovely question uh, to start off with. How did I get involved in the world of scamming? Well, I'm not actually a scam <laughs> person, by the way. I'm just involved in it in terms of protection and understanding. Uh, my background, I, I started off in healthcare, started off in nursing, uh, then trained as a social worker. And, uh, and I've been running the National Centre for Post-Qualifying Social Work now for the last uh, 15 years. And during that process, all of our work has been around safeguarding and adult safeguarding. Um, I was asked by the National Scams team about seven years ago to help them better understand vulnerability, particularly amongst people who had reduced capacity um, and they weren't very clear about the issues around those sorts of things. And that actually coincided with a personal experience in that uh, my own mother, I discovered, was being defrauded and scammed. So here I was as a professor of the National Centre, expert in safeguarding, expert in mental capacity, struggling to even protect my own mother. So that sort of really got me motivated. So it's a combination of doing the national research into fraud and scamming, plus having personal experience of trying to struggle with protecting my own mother that really got me motivated to get in this. And it's kind of like being the last well, five, six, seven years of kind of like a, a personal passion of mine to raise an understanding and an interest of the the scale and the impact of fraud and scamming on citizens in the UK, in fact, worldwide. Indeed, and it's that personal drive and motivation to kind of further the research in this area. Did that feel like a natural progression from your previous work in adult safeguarding? Yeah, it was more than just a progression. It was a sense of like, here I am, I'm meant to know about this. I've written books about it, I understand it, I teach about it. And yet, try as I might, my mum was being scammed. And it was all the classic ones. It was uh, charities ringing her weekly or fortnightly to take money from her. Um, When she passed away, I found box loads of royal jelly, sort of bee jelly, in the loft that she'd been buying and not knowing what to do with it. So she was hiding it in the loft. The time I really realised how badly the scamming was, was um, when I went round one day and there were bags of clothes in dustbin liners in the house. And she was quite a proud northern lady. I wondered what was going on. What were these? Was it a charity shop job or what? You know, and it wasn't. She, she wasn't clearing out clothing. But she was putting vitamins and vitamin supplements in the drawers where her clothes were to put them away. And there were so many, she had to empty out all of her clothes into bags. And when I say so many, my brother and I went to the GP practice where she was registered, where there was a pharmacy. And I said to the pharmacist, I've got some uh, medicines to return. 
and he put a tray on the table and I laughed at him and he said, you wait for this. And I literally had 16 dustbin bags worth of vitamin supplements. I mean, she was sold three and a half thousand pounds worth of vitamins in two weeks by one company. Now, I was not able to stop that. And that was going on. You know, I, I might have been, to you and I, I'm a professor. To my mum, I was still the son. Does that make sense? And I do what I'm told. And that really got my goat up and a kind of a lifetime interest now in, in fraud and scams. So thinking about your mother kind of, and being part of what would kind of traditionally be classed as one of the kind of recognised vulnerable groups, it feels that kind of anecdotally the conversation has changed over the past few years from how people could fall for scams to a much wider recognition that certain groups are particularly vulnerable. Do you think there's perhaps less sympathy when an adult, a younger adult, is taken by a scam? Oh, I think for a long time the initial response was, you know, you're a fool if you're scammed. It's your fault, you know, if somebody offers you something and you fall for it, why have you been such a fool? a bit of an idiot, you know, you were suckered and you are the sucker. But the truth is, is that fraud is now so pervasive and there's so much money to be made by criminals. You know, criminals are not doing domestic burglary anymore. We've got too many TV cameras out there and the TV cameras swap people. Cars aren't being stolen to the same degree because we've all got car alarms and tracker devices. Criminals know the easiest way to make money is to scam people. And criminals do risk-reward ratio games. They work out how much money they can make, what is the chance of them getting caught, and if they get caught, what is the tariff in prison? And they know that scamming is the best crime to be involved in. It's got the best risk-reward ratio, and even if we catch them, the chances of successful prosecution is not always high, and the tariff they get in prison is not very high anyway. So are the techniques and the, I suppose the scams in particular, different and targeted to different age groups? Are there ones which are more successful for certain groups than others? Yeah, I mean, this, the problem with fraud and scamming is, is it, it's a huge range, isn't it, from you know, pension fraud, people trying to lose their pensions, their life savings, people trying to be sold uh, dodgy tarmac on their driveway to goods that aren't fit for purpose. But what a criminal really wants is a victim they can repeat and repeat and repeat and have a, you know, a, a profile of, of scam. If they defraud you or I once, we ain't gonna let it happen second time round or the third time round, we're gonna stop it. I think what we also sometimes forget is, we use the phrase hot state. You and I today, thinking about these issues, are thinking, who on earth would be so stupid to fall for it? But if you put under pressure if I'm hounding you, if I'm stood at your front door, if I'm in your house, if I'm ringing you five times a day on the phone, I can use psychological tricks to put so much pressure on you that sometimes you'll just give up and give in and give me the credit card details or buy the product just to get rid of me because you can't cope with the amount of pressure that I'm putting on you. And, and, it, and it's, it's, that's at the essence of it. You know, they're very, very clever and they're very, very persuasive. So is this how people end up on what are known as suckers lists? It Kind of. I mean, it's a terrible term, suckers list. And although in one sense I don't like to use it, this is exactly what the criminals use. 
So you can go on the dark internet and sometimes even on the open internet and you can buy personal details of people. But these are already graded and, and, and sorted by age profile or dementia profile or likely to be a victim profile. So criminals don't want to buy your name or my name. They want to buy a vulnerable person's name because they're more likely to be able to scam them. And they sell and they trade suckers lists. So there's an important point to make here. If you or a relative or a friend or one of your clients is a victim of fraud, they will be very quickly on a suckers list and their data will be sold to other criminals and they will get bombarded. So thinking about the different types of fraud you mentioned kind of mail and telephone there's lots of different um, phrases nowadays so for example in doing some research came across phishing vishing and smishing are you happy to explain the difference between them because thinking about targeting younger groups and the use of technology it might be quite useful if you really want to learn about this you can go on our website and we've got a definition guide of all the different types of words that are used i'm not sure they're that helpful and i'm not sure it's that You know, don't bother so much about is it phishing, vishing, smishing, what it is. What we're talking about there is the way in which people cast their net to try and draw victims in. And is it through mail? Is it through phone? Is it through internet? I think it's fair to say that we've become much better at reducing the amount of telephone fraud. Telephone fraud is maybe not on the decline, but the telephone call blocking technology is very good. So if you've got a problem, do consider getting telephone technology in there to call block. It works really well. Mail has been intercepted now. You know, there are literally aircraft hangers full of scam mail at Heathrow Airport that we intercept. I mean, tons and tons of it. But of course, what's happening now in particular is the criminals are going onto the internet. And as people are being forced on the internet because local banks are closing, we're having to use internet shopping, criminals know that and they're on the internet more and more. And that's probably the area of biggest growth now uh, is internet crime. And the changes are that over the number of years, you know, years ago, we used to say you can spot a scammer because it's badly printed, badly typed, there are spelling errors in it. Well, let's be really clear. Criminals can employ spell checkers as much as we can and they can employ designers just as much as we can and they make so much money that the the targets are now great. So when you get internet scams now, they look like genuine websites. Indeed. I mean, it was only this morning where I've had fake emails pretending to be the DVLA saying that my vehicle tax hadn't been paid for from TV licensing I know the TV licensing is quite a widely recognised scam, um, and these were both incredibly realistic, and no doubt everyone could be potentially scammed by such contact. So the language in these emails were very official because they were pretending to be official agencies. You've spoken about how pervasive it is, and if we think about persuasive language to win over the victim's confidence... So if there's formal language, is persuasive language noticeably different that our staff could maybe look out for in supporting our clients? It's not always formal. Sometimes it can be quite informal, but it's language to win your confidence. And the persuasive language in particular is used with lonely people. 
People who are so lonely, they're desperate for human conversation, human contact. And so I will come across as very credible. And this is how we get romance scams. People who, on the internet, via the telephone, via the internet, will, will use language to persuade you that I care for you, I'm interested in you, I'm going to only do the best for you. Indeed, I might even want to form a relationship with you. And once that relationship's formed, however that relationship is, then comes the, oh, I need some money to come and pay for the airfare, or I need some money to get out of this situation, can you help me? And they've hooked you in, and you might be the only contact that that person's having, because they're lonely. And we have to deal with loneliness. Persuasive language will always trump loneliness, if that makes sense. I don't have to be that clever to win someone's attention and their confidence if I'm the only person per week they speak to. Definitely. And loneliness is a really important consideration for inpatient services. In Absolutely the, right. In the community, we get to choose who we live with largely. Yeah. If you're in an inpatient stay in a hospital or perhaps a longer-term setting, um, despite maybe having a, your own tenancy agreement, you don't have the same level of control over who else lives with you. So despite being surrounded by staff, to, despite being surrounded by other service users or patients, um, it can feel really lonely. And that's not even considering the loneliness that can come from suffering from certain mental health conditions as well. Something I've observed in practice with people that I've worked with is it's not just loneliness from a social context, but sometimes that can extend to, even if it is a family member or your carer um, who is actually defrauding you or financially abusing you, there can be a real reluctance to report that or take any action at all. The problem with loneliness is... It's for those people, whether you're actually literally lonely or whether you're lonely in a crowd with people around you, do you have somebody around you to sense check? So if someone is trying to sell you something that's too good to be true type thing, if you've got someone you can say, is this right? Does this look right to you? A second person will probably immediately say, don't be silly, don't be daft, it's a scam. If you're on your own, you've got no one to sense check with you. You fall into the scam. So that's the problem with loneliness. You need that sense-checking person around you. And I come back to this thing about, I talked about earlier, hot state, under pressure. Someone described it to me, said that the best way to describe it is, remember when you're a teenager and you first kissed somebody, all your rational emotional feelings went out the window in that hot state of emotion. And it's like that when you're being scammed under pressure you don't apply logic because you're emotionally so tied up in the hot state of the moment. And that's why you need somebody around you to sense check. Or what about if it's a member of your family? Or what about if it's a loved one that's defrauding you? Now, the really interesting thing is, I think Trading Standards and others have done such a great job, and I really want to applaud them. These people do a fantastic job at raising the issues about fraud and the fact it's driven by criminals. But what we haven't done is enough research or thinking about how much crime goes on within families. And it kind of reminds me a little bit of 20, 30, 30, 40 years ago when we started to understand that child abuse existed. You know, child abuse always existed, but it's just that it was only in the 1980s we started to talk about it. 
And in the early days, we assumed that all abusers of children were some weird man down the street that nobody heard of. And then we started to realise that a lot of abusers were actually known to the victim and family members. And I think we're at the same stage with fraud. We need to look a lot more carefully about how much fraud goes on within the family situation. Now, it's very rare that a victim is prepared to go to the police and say, my son, my grandson, my granddaughter, my relative is defrauding me because it's family and you still love your family. And they might be the only contact you have with the outside world. So we know so little about the scale of intrafamiliar fraud that it's, it's actually quite scary. And, it, and I think it's the next stone we have to unturn as researchers and workers in this field to find how big and how scary this problem is. And it's almost like we're reluctant to turn this stone over because we're having enough difficulty dealing with general fraud with criminals. And if we find an even bigger problem, what are we going to do then? But clearly we have to do something about it. So thinking about making the choice not to take it further, obviously adults have a right to make what others see as an unwise decision. And there can be a real tension there with the application of the Mental Capacity Act. Duty of care for providers to make sure that that is both applied and protected and the duty of care to protect the individuals that we support from the experience or risk of abuse. And as someone who's um, done a lot of work around the Mental Capacity Act and published books on the Mental Capacity Act, I wondered what your thoughts were about the tensions between providers having to exercise their duty of care with those two sides of it. So I could have gotten a situation with my mother, let's keep on that one for a while, right, right, she's been defrauded, that's it. She's not having a bank account anymore, she's not looking after her own money, you know, I'm going to stop everything. These are still human beings. And, and so how do you manage the risk? And, and whether they've got capacity, of course, the issue then is capacity for what? It's the decision specificity of that capacity. You know, my mum was still able to spend money in some circumstances. One of the defrauds that she had was that somebody offered to wash her drive and clean her drive. And when I went round... She was delighted. She met me at the front door with the biggest smile you've ever seen. Look at the fact, Keith, I've had my drive washed. And I said to her, I can tell, Mum, it was a block paving drive because all the sand between the blocks was on the road because he pressure washed the whole thing, taken all the sand off, not re-sanded it, and charged her 750 quid for two hours' work. Now, my mum thought it was a good deal because she'd lost the understanding of what should a job cost. And for her, 750 quid was a reasonable sum. And so these are the sorts of issues that you get into with capacity. How do you appropriately and proportionately put in protective mechanisms without actually taking over the person's life and stopping them from being able to function? And we've had examples where someone may be admitted and concerns are raised because they don't have control over their finances um, often very quickly finding out that a family member has taken control in what they are expressing is a genuine belief that they're doing it in the interest of protecting their loved one um, that doesn't change the fact that the concerns are raised and the actions taken after that but more often than not with those particular examples it really does feel like it's coming from a place of genuine care for the individual. Absolutely right. It described to you already the desperate situation, sense of frustration, loss I felt with my own mother. You know, most people out there are not trying to be criminals. They're trying to desperately protect their loved ones. And I would want to say at this point, 
This is the real value of all of us. And I mean everybody who's 18 and above thinking about lasting powers of attorney. You do not know what is round the corner. You could have a motorbike crash, you could have a stroke, you could have an acquired brain injury, you could have dementia, whatever it is. Who are you going to legally give the powers to to make decisions about your life in the future, whether it be property affairs or health and welfare? But give it some thought. These are serious powers that you're giving to somebody. Make sure today it's somebody that you trust it's a real challenge with the younger population in our services, especially because of that fluctuating capacity. And we've already spoken about it being decision specific. Um, and that's a really important consideration reminder for our practitioners that just because someone may not have capacity for maybe consenting to admission, for example, um, doesn't mean they won't have capacity to make decisions about their finances and their purchases. So could it be said that with regards to duty of care, it's often thought that the duty of care is kind of exclusively about protection for the individual. But the importance of protecting their rights as an individual is just as important. And balancing the two is a bit of a tricky art, but it's crucial to making sure that we support the people that we have as clients. It's their, their rights and also their welfare. The problem is, I think, particularly, and I think... Social services, social work and and local government have been dealing with this a lot more. But the nature of healthcare is that sense as healthcare professionals, we are here and we know as professionals what's in the best interests of a person because we're making a professional judgment. But actually the issue is best interest decisions and best interests are not about your professional best interest decision it's about what's in the best interest of the individual and this is a mind shift that's still required in my view in a lot of the healthcare professional world that actually we need to stop believing that as professionals we understand and our view and our professional judgment is more important than the individual's perception or the individual's view or the individual's rights. Now, you know, it's about how do we do that in partnership and how do we do that effectively? And, you know, I don't want to knock healthcare professionals. There's some great practice out there and there's a wonderful practice, but we must at least admit that we've had a long journey of travel on that kind of thing about professional judgment and autonomy and almost like godlike syndrome we know best and we're probably still on that journey and we need to go a little bit further indeed and hopefully as those six principles of making safeguarding personable were enshrined into the care act if we think about you mentioned partnership which is one of the six principles but if if we take the other side of that which would be empowerment and empowering the individual with person-led decisions person-centered care um that's, I mean, it's crucial to the safeguarding process. Without doing that, we don't get the process right at all. Exactly right. Um, and if we think about scamming as part of a safe... or the response to an individual being scammed as a safe part of the safeguarding process, um, empowerment, that person-led response, a proportionate person-led response, is crucial to getting that safeguarding journey right. But the other part of empowerment isn't just the response to the risk or experience... It's about making sure that we empower them where possible to minimise or mitigate the risk in the future. So is there anything that you're aware of, of how we can support service users to be more aware of the risks? So just sticking on that notion of empowerment, 
one of the problems and sometimes difficulties is we end up trying to empower people too late in the process. When it's so late, we, we try to empower them when actually maybe they've lost capacity or they're losing capacity. Why aren't we trying to empower everybody every day? Where are the discussions with all of the clients that we've got, with all of the people that we're working with today about what might be happening tomorrow and the future? Have the discussion about with somebody in an empowering way. What would you like to have happen if this happened or anything happened? What are your desires? Advanced care planning is another term we sometimes use. You know, how do we help somebody think through what they would like to have happen to them? It could often be very messy and very difficult to really empower somebody at the last moment. Do it today. Indeed. And it's worth remembering that protection is what we do in response to something, but safeguarding is something we should be doing all the time. It's embedded into our approach before someone even starts working in a health and social care. The safe recruitment process kicks off the world of safeguarding and it should be entrenched in almost every part of what staff do. And it just strikes me that the problem we've got is too many citizens are reluctant to talk about potential difficult times in the future. And it's almost like we don't want to talk about what might happen in case it brings it on. We've got this kind of bizarre world that we live in. I'm not going to talk about how I might die because it might make me die. You know, we are so illogical as human beings. And, and we've had it happen with cancer. You know, the wonderful thing about cancer is we talk, we use the word cancer now. It wasn't that many years ago. We used the word, the C word. And, we, you know, that horrible disease because it meant death. Well, now that more than 50% of people with cancer survive, we talk about cancer and we celebrate Macmillan and we celebrate, you know, running around in pink T-shirts. And, and it's a good thing. But we need the same level of public momentum and debate about end of life and loneliness and scamming to get that over that hump that people talk about it so if you're feeling slightly burdened by this uh, talk it's not just on your shoulders <laughs> you know society needs to carry this we all need to carry this because if we don't unfortunately you could end up in a similar situation to the one I was in with my own mum and living with an element of regret that you weren't able to get in there sooner and we're quite fortunate in mental health that part of discharge planning includes planning for what happens when things go wrong. And the CPA process incorporates that. It ensures where possible for that multi-agency, multidisciplinary conversation and making sure that everyone's on the same page. But going back to empowering before it goes wrong thinking about um, different forums within the organisation. So, for example, community meetings, patient meetings in hospitals where people get together. That could be a really good opportunity to talk about risks such as this, thinking about and give people the opportunity to share their experiences as well in a way that if you wait until it's gone wrong, and unfortunately sometimes we see admissions because it's gone wrong, if we can learn from that and use that opportunity to empower people, as you say, before it starts to go sideways, it's a really important opportunity to take. We're human beings that often do not like to face up to things and we put off until it's almost too late and sometimes it is too late. So the relationships we have with our service users, our clients, our patients is crucial from the point of assessment where we ask about any financial difficulties that someone might have through to discharge planning. It's important that we consider 
these risks. We've spoken about planning discharge and, where possible, educating people to the risks. So are there any particular sources of guidance, maybe websites, phone numbers, which would be useful to signpost our residents, clients, patients to? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, and it's a good point, thank you, because these are often very difficult conversations to have and to start. So therefore, having material that you can look at and and kind of brief yourself on is helpful. So, you know, you can download loads of guides, all party parliamentary reports, guidance, I mentioned the guidance on persuasive use of languages, other materials on our website, ncpqsw.com. National Trading Standards have their Friends Against Scam scheme and there's materials there. So you can find materials. So sometimes these leaflets are really important for your workers, for staff, to inform themselves, sometimes are what I call a bridge into the conversation, yeah? It's not easy to go to your clients and say, oh, right, we're going to have the fraud conversation now, or are you feeling okay about your finances? Having the leaflets is a, is a bridge into that conversation. So do download them. It is the bridge that helps have that conversation. If it's any reassurance, Keith, we have a safeguarding protection hub that was developed last year for all of our employees to access across the entire organization and on there are already links to the resources on your website um, um you both available <laughs> to print off for our patients um, and also the information for staff to access to learn from as well yeah and i'll make an, an, an honest and genuine um offer via this podcast if there are gaps if people are thinking I've got all this material on, on, on your website there, on your safeguarding hub, but there's a gap. Get in touch with your organisation or get in touch with me. You can track me down. It's not that hard to find on the internet and I'll do something about it. That's the pledge I'll make. I'll write something new. You know, I don't know of every single situation or every problem that your people are facing. But because of what I shared earlier, I'm still determined to try and make sure it gets better. And together we can make a real difference. So have a go and do get in touch. There we go. So there's a commitment from both Keith and myself. If anybody does get in contact, they can contact Safeguarding Protection at priorygroup.com. That'll come straight through to me and I can liaise with Keith and we can look at developing some real bespoke materials where there's a need. Keith, thank you so much for your invaluable input today. It's been fascinating talking to you and I'm grateful for the expert insight into the importance of the topic especially how those in positions of trust can help support and to minimize the impact of scammers on the at-risk individuals we support so until next time thank you for listening and goodbye